Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 46. Are you interested in building interactive dashboards with Python? How about a project that takes a flat data file all the way to being web hosted and interactive? This week on the show, David Amos is back and he's brought another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. Along with the Real Python article about data visualizations using Dash, David covers an article designed to help Python developers understand the fundamentals of C. We discuss a couple of articles about Excel and using Python with Microsoft Office. We also cover several other articles and projects from the Python community, including out-of-memory crashes in Python, updating all packages with pip review, data science notebooks for teams, and a command line tool for looking up colors, shades, and palettes. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, David, welcome back. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me back. There's kind of a bit of an announcement with Real Python. We have a, a bunch of topics today that are very data science driven and actually a lot that are around sort of C in Python. And kind of some news related to that is the the announcement that the C Python internals book is out of preview and should be available for purchase, but also the the printed version should be soon too, right? Yeah, we should have the the printed version relatively soon. I think we're still collecting some feedback kind of left over and, and uh, we're working on kind of the final final tweaks to all that to make it look uh, really good in print. So, but yeah, that book is now out of, out of preview. It's written by Anthony Shaw, who's a real Python author and. Yep. Previous guest, previous guest. And also just announced recently, he's switching jobs to take a developer advocate role at, at Microsoft, which is pretty exciting, but uh, yeah, see Python book is kind of from the more advanced crowd, I would say, but it covers, it's it, the subtitle is Your Guide to the Python 3 Interpreter. And so if you ever wondered how the C Python interpreter works, then this, this walks you through the whole thing and uh, you learn a lot about how Python works under the hood. Yeah, it's going to dovetail really well into the episode I have next week where I talk to Brett Cannon, where we talk a lot about all the internal workings of the different functions inside of Python and kind of uh, almost sort of unravel them is his title for his yeah. <laughs> series. So I'm excited to share that episode with everybody next week. Yeah, that'll be awesome. And, you know, one of the things that you need to kind of get through the book CPython internals is a working understanding of the C programming language. And Real Python's own Jim Anderson has written a an article that we released a little while ago called C for Python Programmers. It's actually the appendix from the C Python Internals book. So that'll be included there for reference if you if you get the book and, and read that. But uh, it's also available on realpython.com. And it's a real kind of gentle introduction to, to C if you've never seen it before. And it's 
not a long introduction. So it's, you know, it's not going into a whole lot of depth in all this stuff. It's really just like, you know, your quick start guide to understanding C so that you can follow along with the C Python internals book. But it's, it covers the C preprocessor, which is one of those things that I think, you know, if, if you don't have any experience with C or with like a compiled language kind of like this, you know, we don't really have anything in Python really like a preprocessor. Yeah. So, you know, that that can look kind of weird. You know, there's all these like, you know, hash symbol include, hash symbol define, all this stuff. And it's like, what does this actually do? How does this work? And so he, he walks you through what the C preprocessor is and, and some of the fundamentals of that. And then he gets into basic C syntax uh, for Python programmers. And, you know, the reason that it's for Python programmers is it's kind of written from that perspective you're familiar with Python, but you've never seen C before. So it kind of approaches it from that direction. But yeah, it's a really good, just quick introduction to C and would be a good jumping off point then to pick up the C Python internals book and follow along with that. Yeah, I'm excited to check out the book a little bit further. All this initially was making me a little nervous about like diving deeper into it. I've done a little bit in C. I had learned some of it because I was interested in programming for iOS and that's the language actually I had learned way back when I was in college. I had dealt with C a little bit and Fortran. And so I had to kind of pick it back up and then Objective C. And then they they quickly shifted everything to Swift right about the same time I got interested into it. So that was an interesting transition and kind of following. You know, it's such a common thing for developers today to have to move across different languages and understand the different structural changes in there and how they can kind of relate and talk to each other. And in the case of Python, what's sort of happening underneath this, underneath all of, all of that in the interpreter. So it's it's pretty cool. And that'll be kind of a bit of a theme today. <laughs> uh, in a few of our things, we'll be talking about some of the underlying stuff that happens inside of all of our programs. Yeah. My first topic here is from another previous guest, we have we've talked <laughs> about three guests in a row here because <laughs> uh, Jim was on the show recently. And this is from Itamar Turner Trowering. Um, his blog is Python Speed. And he was on episode 24. We talked a lot about packaging Python applications. After some further discussions and one of his other articles kind of came up on one of our topics. So brought him on the show. And this one is called Dying Fast and Slow. And the subtitle is Out of Memory Crashes in Python. And it's kind of funny because it's a bit dark. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the terminology uses a lot about death. <laughs> and uh, it kind of goes a little bit further. So hopefully you can take that with a, a little bit of a grain of salt and <laughs> think about it. But it really is trying to show you the different ways that memory issues can manifest and so that you can kind of look back at what happened and how they happened and so that you can go back and debug and hopefully fix them. And Edomar works a lot with this and has been a focus for his blog. And he's also created some tools, which I'll mention in this also, um, that can help you with this process. So the first one he talks about is a slow death. <laughs> and the slow death is typically characterized by swapping, which is taking the data that, that you're working with and you're running out of RAM memory. And it could be from lots of different things. It could be you're running multiple processes, you know, everybody's picking on Chrome lately, but maybe you got a lot of Chrome tabs open and it's eating up a lot of your RAM and then you're trying to run your, your instances or you're trying to run your application. And so suddenly it's out of 
physical RAM chips memory, and it's going to go and grab yeah. space from your hard drive and swap back and forth between that. And that can be really slow depending on you know the age of your machine and the technology behind there. And it can really seem to be this sort of strange thing where everything's sort of slowing down suddenly because it's grabbing and pushing things around. And then eventually, depending on how the swap file is allocated and the space that's been allocated in your storage system for that, that can run out also. And then yeah. suddenly, then you're completely stopped. And so it, it kind of like is like this winding down, as he described it as a slow death. Then <laughs> the next one is an obvious death, which I, I characterize as a nice death. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Question mark. Because in this case, it's like you're having a memory error and Python has identified it in the interpreter and as it's allocating and the API fails to allocate, hopefully at that point, you're going to get this memory error exception and you'll get the error up here and you can like see what happens. So like it's a lot easier for the individual to diagnose what happened. You know, it's obvious and you can kind of see what's happened and hopefully troubleshoot where things went wrong in your, in your application and troubleshoot it quickly. The next one is a little harder to find, which is a corrupted death. And this is actually going back to C. So there's something called a seg fault in your C code. And it's in a case where the code has been written. And again, there's a lot of interesting stuff with C libraries. Or if you're being adventurous in your data science and you're trying to figure out ways to harness the advantages and speed of using C, if you're not really good at the concepts of memory allocation and, and planning for potential errors. There's this thing where a, a memory address can be allocated for this chunk of memory, but if the allocation is too large and it fails, like it's been given this memory ID, this location, that in this case, it was too large to find a space to, to be able to store that huge amount, it would return a zero or basically a null address. And if it tries to run with that, then it's going to crash. And so it's one of these things that you may not know what's going on. And it's, again, leads to this whole like level of like corruption where you're like, where is this error happening? And that's where like a program like his tool, it's a memory profiler called Phil, I think it's pronounced F-I-L. And that can actually help you and or using something like a, a debugger and GDB. These kind of tools go through and look at the of where this potentially could be happening and again, it's kind of diving deeper into the C code itself and and looking for for yeah. potential problems where stuff's happened. I was just gonna say, I, when I was in uh, college, I took a an operating systems class that used C as the the programming language for that. And the segmentation faults were like the most common thing that <laughs> any of us ran into during that class. So I got to see lots of that firsthand during then. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's something that, again, without needing to worry too much about memory allocation inside of Python, it's something that's pretty foreign <laughs> for most of us Yeah, uh, to think about it. And again, a lot of data science people are not really coming from the, the computer science side of things. And so, again, they may not like really kind of see where all that's happening and understand what's happening with it. So having some additional resources, and he's updated the tool since I talked to him back in episode 24 to be able to work on Jupyter Notebooks. And it, it's, a, it's a really nice open source tool. So something to check out. Last one is kind of a funny one. He calls it death by assassination. <laughs> and I mean, again, joking in this sense, 
the thing that's doing the killing here is the operating system itself. And the operating system can, especially modern ones like uh, Mac OS or Linux, can actually go and see this process is getting out of hand and the operating system can just shut it off and just yeah. say, all right, this thing's using too much memory, I'm going to kill it. This happens even on like, you know, again, like a iPhone or other th- tools like that, you might have seen something like that happen where an application just cer- certainly has been killed by the OS. It used to be that your entire machine would lock up, right? And so it's nice in some ways that the operating system can can decide these things and say, okay, this process is getting out of hand. But it's hard for you to know what happened in that case. You yeah. have to know the operating system's sort of underlying tools. And the article goes into that to help you kind of say, well here's where those logs are. Here's where you can kind of find more information. And again, something like a memory profiler might help. So it's a really great tool if you're having these kinds of things or maybe in the past you've had a history of working with these large, very memory-intensive processes and you want to look at it. Or memory is one of those expensive resources when you look at virtual machines or you're looking at cloud things. And so it's one of these things that having an idea of where these bottlenecks and problems can happen with memory might help you avoid a lot of problems or potentially a lot of headaches with your your cloud instances and things like that so and potentially a lot of money yeah exactly (laughs) yeah 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 Yeah. what do you got next my next topic is switching gears a little bit into kind of the data science space a little well this one is is not so much data science as it is i guess more like business business tasks and, and automation yeah it comes from the blog Practical Business Python by Chris Moffitt, and uh, which is a really cool blog if you're into like the business space and automation and everything. Chris has got a ton of great resources on there. But this uh, this article is called a, a Case Study: Automating Excel File Creation and Distribution with Pandas and Outlook. And it actually comes from one of his readers that sent him a note saying that that he had a business need that arose where he needed to send out emails with Excel attachments to about 500 users. And it was going to be a really kind of arduous manual task because they had like a master Excel file with all the user data. Yeah. And they had to split that Excel file like per user and just send each user like their portion of that file as an Excel spreadsheet. So you can imagine, you know, having to do that manually would take for like 500 users. It's going to take a, a lot of time. But they uh, were able to use Python and Pandas to automate it all for them, as well as sending out all the emails and everything and save themselves a lot of time. So it's a really cool example of how just knowing a little bit of Python and you know being comfortable with that can really bring a lot of value to a business and to you as a, a job holder of that business. You know, it's, It can be seen as a a good skill that you have and but uh, they walk through solving the problem and show how how they use pandas to read the excel file sort through it and split everything up based on the the customer they make a nice use of the pandas group by method on the data frame object which we've we've actually got some good resources on real python about uh, yeah group by and then how they separate all that out write it to individual excel workbooks and then integrate with Microsoft Outlook to send all the all the emails. So it's not it's not a super long article, but it does have all the code in there, kind of walks you through it. Yeah, it's just a really great example of of this kind of uh, Python superpower thing that, you know, we've we've talked about before. So I thought that was a neat 
article and a cool case study. Yeah, I like that that blog a lot. I, I've actually, yeah. <laughs> when I was in my job at at the bank, I, I was always looking at those because it was very much combining a lot of the office tools, which are usually Microsoft type of tools, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> and uh, combining them. And so, like, if you have Outlook and you have Excel, and you want to do more of that great automating the boring stuff kind of stuff, it is a really uh, good resource. And so that that's nice that. He's getting uh, <laughs> people submitting additional stuff to him to kind of build on top of it. It's great. Yeah, I, I really enjoy Chris's Chris's blog. I mean, as someone who also used to be working for a business, you know, I do appreciate seeing these kinds of, of use cases. And it it's it's interesting to me as well. Like, I think that you know, when I when I was working for business and having to use like Office three sixty five and everything, there wasn't a lot of Python support for that. Yeah. And I think that's growing. So I think there's actually kind of a, a movement in Microsoft as well to start. Like I, I think you can now do some scripting with uh, for Office with with Python, as opposed to like solely having to use their uh, like a VBA or, or even like yeah. the C sharp. <laughs> there's a big stuff. sigh for me on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, the, the VBA here. is is so clunky. I've spent a lot of time, way more time than I ever would have liked uh, debugging VBA code. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, fun stuff. But yeah, so it'll be it'll just be interesting to kind of watch that space and see how Python grows there because now Microsoft has a lot of big, big players in the Python space working for them. So they absolutely do. <laughs> yeah, I hope they can integrate it more because that you know we've talked about several industries now be it you know we were talking about you know 3d printing and 3d modeling for you know not only manufacturing but also the the space of creating for visual effects and things like that and i've actually learned there's a few different music programs that are trying to do that you know like create additional plugins or other kind of structural stuff with well i've seen one that has uses python but then there's a few that actually use JavaScript, which I thought was kind of interesting too. So, you know, the idea of like kind of using some of these more larger audience languages to potentially open up what you can do inside there, I think is really great if they can do it and, you know, make the tooling be open like that. Yeah. What you got next? My next one is from a website called Stack Abuse, and it actually just says anonymous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the person who submitted it, which I thought was interesting, guest contributor. <laughs> yeah, guest contributor. It's a tool called Pip Review, and this is basically just kind of going over the things that are inside of it, and it allows you to update packages. So imagine you have a virtual environment. I do this a lot with Real Python because I review a lot of the video courses before we put them on the site. So I want to test the code and go through step-by-step to make sure everything's working. So I might come back to a virtual environment and a whole sort of code session that I've left on my drive as something I might want to repeat and look back at. So I, I decided, well, let me try this thing out. And it's from this other set of tools called PIP tools, which has a lot of other additional powerful things. So they've kind of extracted this specific tool called PIP review what it will do is look at what's been installed on your virtual environment and see what the status is. You can actually like just run it and it'll it'll actually give you a nice little report and tell you, okay, you have scikit-learn installed and this is the version you have. 
And this is the version that's available. And maybe it's like, you know, one version sub number off or something like that. But it'll go through all the things that are in the virtual environment and that have been pip installed, which is pretty slick. And then there's a whole bunch of tools. It's actually a very readable uh, command line tool where you can you can say, hey, just update them all, which is nice. Instead of having to know, you know, which ones are which and, and go through them. And then there's an interactive version of that, which is really nice, where it can actually ask you as you go along and you can say upgrade no now and yes or no. Or you can just, again, hit all and do them all. Then there's also a constraint file kind of feature that you can put in there where you can say, I want to leave things within these particular constraints and you know what, what version you're, you're willing to go up to. So it's a, a really simple article, goes through just all these kind of simple steps and started getting going with the, with the tool. And I was excited by uh, how simple and easy it is to get going with, with it. And especially if you work with virtual environments and work on lots of different projects, you can kind of look at the status of what's happening very quickly in a readable, very <laughs> organized way, work through what you want to review or update in your environments. Yeah, it's interesting. So I I started looking a little bit at uh, kind of the history of this and it was so pip review was removed from the pip tools package way back in 2015, which I I hadn't realized actually. Huh. And there were a bunch of people that were like really sad about that because they really liked really liked it. So it sounds like it's they've just recently kind of brought it back as its own thing. Recently, it looks like maybe within the past 10 months or so is what I'm seeing on the on the Git repo. Yeah. And they're currently looking for a new maintainer as well. They've got a deal on here. They're looking for a new maintainer. But uh, it is a really cool little tool. I mean, it's, it's not 100% necessary in the sense that, you know, PIP can like show you wh- what all your outdated packages are and you can use existing like bash commands and stuff to kind of pipe that stuff into other commands and kind of put together a little workflow. Right. But I do really like the the nice CLI that it has. It just makes it so, so easy. And it's kind of interesting, kind of interesting seeing like the comments from people here back in 2015 that are all like, like, oh no, like, why'd you remove it? I use this all the time. It was so good. And one guy even shows like before he just had to do like pip review dash dash interactive and then, you know, yes, no, whatever on his stuff. Or now he has to do pip list dash dash outdated, get a list of his outdated packages and then pip install package one, pip install package two. Like, oh man, come on. Like it's so much easier. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> It'd be nice to have something walk you through it, you know? Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's just funny. Like I'm just go- kind of scrolling through it right now. It's just like, man, there was a lot of kind of backlash when they, when they removed this. So it's neat to see that they're, they're reviving it. You know, I just, I just like it because like, it's, you know, it, it packages it up so nicely and it's just such a easy and intuitive UI on that for the, for the command line. And I let you know, I mean, pa- dependency management is really hard. I mean, knowing that like, okay, I, I need to upgrade this one tool, but should I also upgrade the tools that it depends on and then the tools that those depend on? Like, right, right. There's this whole combinatorial exploding tree of dependencies that <laughs> potentially that can be really difficult to manage and this just makes it really easy. So yeah, really cool to see that come back. It kind of goes back to the, all the, things that the PIP team has been working on with their dependency resolver and yeah, you know, work inside there. So it kind of goes back to some of the work that's in there. So yeah, but it's a, it's a neat little tool. Again, just to kind of get the state of things, it's nice to see. And it, along with like the interactive part of it, I'm, 
I'm liking it. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It's called Command Line Interfaces in Python. It's based on a RealPython article by Andre Burgod. In the course, instructor Liam Pulsifer explains the details behind implementing your own command line interfaces in Python and how they can process a variety of arguments. In the video course, you'll learn about the origins of Python command line arguments, the standards guiding the design of a CLI, the basics to manually customize and handle Python command line arguments, and you'll learn about libraries available in Python and third parties to ease the development of a complex CLI of your own. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn how to implement your own command line interface and how to handle a variety of arguments to make them flexible and more useful to the users of your Python projects. Like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections and it includes code samples for the techniques shown. This course also includes a shiny new transcript and closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. What do you got next? Uh, next one on my list is an article called Ditching Excel for Python, Lessons Learned from a Legacy Industry. And this is written by Amy Penniston. This was published back in back in December, and we featured it in PyCoders, I think that, that week, that, it, that last week of... Uh, December, first week of January, whatever it was. Uh, this is a really, really interesting article. So it is not technical at all. There's, I don't think there's a single line of code in the entire article, but it is a really fascinating sort of look at how Python is starting to really change an entire industry. And Amy Works is, I, I, I'm not sure if she's an analyst I think she says what her title is here, but that's not, I guess, so important. But she works in something called the reinsurance industry, which I had never heard of until about a year ago when I was reading an article about, actually about uh, COVID-19 and and how a bunch of insurance companies for businesses had been approached in the past by these reinsurance companies for purchasing insurance in the case of something like this, like a pandemic. And they, you know, they, they where they would have to shut down their, their operations for an extended period of time. And, you know, a lot of businesses didn't buy into it because they just thought, really? I mean, what are the odds of anything right. like that actually happening? Then no, it's, it's not worth it. And then of course now a lot of them probably wish that they had <laughs> some kind of um, yeah. insurance like that. And so the reinsurance industry is basically they they offer insurance for insurance companies, which is like a weird, weird thing. But if 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 there's a huge event, say like something I'm familiar with is uh, like the flooding that we've had here in Texas back four five years ago now when Hurricane Harvey hit, it was like widespread damage from the flood in in Houston, and the insurance companies had so many cases that they they didn't have the funds necessary to to pay the, forget the word I'm looking for, but, uh, you know, to pay the, pay the policy to all the people that were filing claims because their houses had, had flooded. So there's a, they have reinsurance programs that basically offer a way for those companies to, uh, make sure that they can handle that inflow. Those insurance companies can handle that influx of cases and be able to, to pay everyone what they're, you know, what they're, they need for their claim. 
so that's the reinsurance industry. And Amy, the author of this article, works in that reinsurance industry. And it's heavily, heavily dependent on Microsoft Excel. And she says here, the point is that Excel is the key piece of software that enables underwriting teams to assess new businesses. Throughout the company, different teams use different models, each with different processes and different pricing hurdles. But the one common theme is that all of the models are based on Excel spreadsheets, just, just how the industry works. Everyone uses Excel for everything. Well, until recently. And she starts talking about how there's been this small but growing movement of Python in the reinsurance industry and that, you know, analysts that are up to speed on Python are finding themselves at a huge advantage in the industry. So it's, you know, she talks about how it's changing, how, you know, Python and from her perspective really is the future for this industry. And also kind of going back to what we were talking about before with uh, Python and Excel, how now like because there's better integration between Excel and Python, like it's getting easier. She even mentions like rather than having to like deal with all this VBA code, you can now use Python instead thanks to a, th- a third-party Excel add-in called PyXLL. And then that way you can just use and use Python instead of instead of the VBA, which I'm sure is a huge nightmare for these people yeah. <laughs> in the in- reinsurance industry. She also talks about how using notebooks in the browser is something that's becoming more popular and how that is helping to increase efficiency and ha- make better models, better predictions, and better analysis. So it's just a really kind of cool again it's sort of a case study and just sort of a pitch for like hey like python is really really changing industries and one of the things she mentions is that you know historically the reinsurance agent industry has just been like slow to adopt new technology and you know they're finally kind of catching on and i'm sure there's other industries out there that are just kind of slow to adopt and python could be something that that would really help those industries. So yeah, it's an extremely well-written article, really, really fascinating. So if, if you're into that kind of stuff, I really recommend reading it. It's just it's just a really interesting look into, into all that. Yeah, it's cool. I, <laughs> I can imagine that industry is only going to grow <laughs> in, with the state of things as they are. And yeah, you would think. The change and everything we're having, yeah, it's kind of wild. So my next one, is kind of diving deeper into the data science world again and talking about data visualizations. It's a real Python article by Dylan Castillo called Develop Data Visualization Interfaces in Python with Dash. So going beyond the idea of having a data visualization with something like Matplotlib or or some of the other popular ones that are out there, having something where it's truly like a dashboard and having that ability for the users to interact and adjust parameters and move things around, to me, has always been the really exciting part of data visualizations. It's always something that I strive for, and I looked at packages like Bokeh, and I had played around with early versions of Plotly and Dash, um, but I hadn't really kind of come back to it. And so it was neat to see this article. And I don't know, my favorite thing about it is how well the output looks. It's just, it's a really great project. And yeah, with a handful of simple tools and some some basic additional help, you know, in the CSS and the HTML department, which 
is part of the thing that's a little unique and it kind of going back to the idea of like, well, you do need to know a little bit about the structurally what these things do, though there's a lot of other packages and tools that are out there can kind of give you a leg up on not having to write all of that yourself. But it, it really gets you started with this tool and Dash as a tool is available like as an enterprise tool where they'll help you with the hosting and do all this other kind of advanced stuff. And that's where they definitely make the money to keep the project going. But there is this open source version of it. And uh, we'll link to all that stuff for you to kind of check out more about it. But it's written on top of Flask. So it's using Flask to do the hosting and kind of to you know keep it running in your browser. And then it uses um, Plotly, its JavaScript library for a lot of that uh, interactivity stuff that's inside the browser, and then it also uses React to allow to kind of mm-hmm. connect things together. What's nice is the code that you're writing primarily is Python, and you can kind of see it structured that way. But there is also a little bit of stuff kind of happening under the scenes. You actually are creating divisions or divs that you might have seen in HTML, as far as like you know, like how do you want to lay things out and organize things. So yeah, you know, there's a little bit of that. So it starts out with just getting you started how to you know, get a, your environment set up, and then building kind of a simple Dash application. It's kind of a fun one because it, it, everybody kind of jokes about millennials and, and avocados. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's this kind of a story about uh, avocados uh, and sort of sales and prices of avocados over, I guess, 2015 to 2018 with this nice data set uh, CSV. So you import it in, you are using pandas in the background to kind of do some of the tools that we talked about before, about grouping and sort of organizing. So any skills you have there will come in handy here. But beyond building this very simple Dash application, what I liked about it is it actually went those extra steps of saying, well, you can go beyond that and style it. And this is where it can be embedding HTML and CSS and some additional libraries to really customize how it looks and and really make that difference, that extra step to, you know, again, not only make it look nice so people will be impressed by it, but also the next step is then to add this interactivity. And it uses a, a functionality called callbacks. And the tutorial is really good and it has a handful of callbacks in it. But what I did on my own is I went to the website for um, Dash and looked at their tutorial site and it has a lot more examples of this. I would say, for me, this would be the area I would focus on to learn how to make things interactive and how you can build all that stuff. And and you're building a variety of projects in this tutorial to see all the interactivity and that callback sort of uh, interactions. So like things like you know having a drop down to narrow types of data to change you know date ranges to change types of, like in this case, it, would, it could be sales or it could be price and you could kind of just flip between them or you could choose, and I think one of the things is the type of avocado um, and <laughs> which is kind of cool and then regions and stuff. Yeah. It, it, it's really well done. It's a, a really well-structured article and you get a really nice project at the end of it to kind of showcase you know what the types of things you could create. And then as a final sort of bonus at the very end, it talks about how to deploy it to Heroku so you could have it hosted. And again, that's that extra little thing. Like I know that when I was looking for my last Python job for working with RealPython, that was one of the things that I wanted to focus on is to create things that I could send somebody an email and it's more than just like a resume. 
it's a project. And you know, a lot of the people that I was interviewing with, they're they're they were not the technical people at the bank. You know, they were not like the coding type people. They were, you know, other users and they wanted you to be that problem solver. And so having like a place where you can say, hey, go to this website. This is something I built. It's an interactive da-da-da-da-da. You know, and having that hosted somewhere is, I think, can be that extra little feather in your cap of, of like showing off these sort of practical skills like I can build these things for you and I know how they can be hosted and 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 you know either internally or externally or what have you. And so I really like that kind of little end cap to the to the project. Yeah. And so I was very impressed by by just the whole structure of it and I, I feel like <laughs> the library's come a long way in just the two years since I've been kind of looking at it. So um I'm really impressed with it. And again, if you're interested in data visualization, and especially if you're interested in making something that's much more of an application sort of dashboard type of thing, it's a really great library for that. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I um, I really could have could have used something like that several years ago when, uh, when I needed to do, I was doing all sorts of charts and stuff. My boss really wanted like some, some dashboards and stuff. And, you know, I was, I was using Bokeh at the time, which is, which is cool, but you know, it's, it's, um, it's not as um, quick to develop, I guess, as as Dash is. Dash is a lot, uh, you know, if you just want to get something, you know, that's not super fancy, although, you, get, you know, you could get pretty fancy with it, but, you know, you can get something up and going pretty quickly, which is which is always really nice because, you know, time is really the most <laughs> expensive yeah. part of a lot of these, you know, business-related things. So, right. so any, any, anything you can do that saves you time is always really good. I always feel like that's the thing that's going to determine if any more investment is going to be put into something. Right. Is to have have the ability to stand something on up on its legs and say, well, this is, you know, if you will, the prototype of what this could be. Do you want me to invest more time in this? You know, do you want me to go further with it? And then, you know, what's nice is in this case, you can do that. You know, you can you can, you know, style it and uh, and improve it and add all those interactive elements so and there's lots of examples of other additional you know kind of tools and things you can kind of use with it so it's a it's a popular library so check it out so i guess that brings us to projects what'd you bring this week for projects yeah so my project this week is a little bit different in the sense that it is not uh it's not an open source project but i saw it and was like man that is that's just really cool and i think a lot of people if you you know the work in data analysis and data science if you've not seen this before especially if you work on a team then this might be something worth looking into it's called deep note and it is a paid service but it is jupiter notebooks or it really it's says jupiter compatible i think it's a slightly different platform but but you could like import existing jupiter notebooks into it basically and probably export as a as a jupyter notebook as well but it's it's a notebook that runs in your browser that has a bunch of team in a kind of team collaboration features very similar to something like uh uh like Google Docs or Google Sheets in the cloud so you can you can collaborate on on things you can you know annotate with like comments and things like that it's got a bunch of like apps that you can install in it or integrations that that work with like databases and other data platforms version control like uh GitHub and it's even got like a little built-in terminal so that while you're working in the browser you can open up a terminal a command line and start 
working with stuff there if, if you want. So, but just the collaboration features look really cool. And if you're on a data science team or data analytics team, this looks like a really awesome way to collaborate on things and save you that trouble of like having to kind of make sure everyone's got the same environment set up, right? To sort of share these things around. Your environment is literally shared ac across everyone. You don't have to do anything to like maintain anyone's local environment or anything. So that's, uh, you know, that can, can take some of the headaches out of that stuff there. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's been a theme for us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I haven't really like tried it out a whole lot. It, they do have like a, you can, you can try a web app with it just to kind of get a feel for, for how it works, but it is a paid, a paid service. There is like a free individual plan. So you can get started for free and it gives you like a standard machine, right? So there's some sort of like, this is all running on, on some server somewhere. And so uh, you get like a standard machine with some limited like compute hours and things like that. You can have up to three collaborators and you get access to um, some private integrations. So, so yeah, you can get started for free, but you know, for like the full access, you, you know, there is a like a per user pricing tier. You know, if you work at a large company with a big team, it might, you know, it might make sense, uh, might solve a lot of uh, hassles. But I just thought it was really, really cool project could be useful for some of our listeners out there. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it seems like there's a lot of that, especially this year, that world has exploded even more of all the different ways of having collaborative tools. So yeah, it's uh, nice to see even more tools kind of open up that space and sort of figuring out which ones are going to work the best for, for you and your organization. So so my project is really simple. <laughs> and I have wanted a little tool like this for a long time. It's called Colorpedia. And it's a command line tool. It's very similar to pip review and the idea of like really simple, straightforward command line tool. But in this case, it allows you in your terminal to do a real quick lookup of colors, shades, and palettes of, you know, if you're doing any kind of design, again, kind of going back to Dash a little bit, and talking about CSS, and that's where I think a lot of people kind of get stuck. And I was doing a little web design. I know you've done some too. Mm -hmm. uh, you can get really kind of in a whole rabbit hole of like, okay, well, I'm not like a you know a designer who's gone to school and studied color theory <laughs> and things like that. And so like, right, kind of going through and like thinking about like, okay, what are compatible shades and so forth. And so it's a nice tool to help you look up the colors. It gives you the hex values. It gives you the additional, oh gosh, what is all the stuff? The RGB values, the hex code values, the HSL, which is hue, saturation, lightness, and hue, saturation, brightness. Uh, or if you need it, CMYK. And then there's a lot of shades also that are named that you might not be aware of. And so it helps you uh, figure those out and it can help you, you know, take a you know, simple like color like blue and you can say, okay, give me a, a set of shades with this command line set of values. And then it has a bunch of palettes in it already. I just was impressed with it. It's a very, again, simple project written in Python, kind of gets you going. If you're interested in trying to learn a little more about you know, the types of uh, palettes and colors that are out there and and help you kind of not not have to delve too deep in trying to find uh, other online tools to <laughs> learn about colors. I, I liked it a lot. Yeah, it's it's a neat little little tool. And, you know, it's something that I think, you know, could be useful for people, but also a really cool 
like just example project for you to go and, and kind of look at. Sure, that too. That stuff as well. So, you know, and see how they're how they're doing all this because it's got a really nice UI for like a, a command line uh, application and lots of cool little features. So yeah, cool stuff. All right. Thanks for coming on the show again, David, and sharing all those articles and projects with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, talk to you soon. See you later. I want to thank David Amos for coming on the show again. And I want to thank you for listening to The Real Python Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your favorite player. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.